Our scripture lesson for today is taken from the opening verses of 1 Timothy. A little bit a little bit edited from what you see in the bulletin that hear now the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my loyal child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Christ Jesus our Lord. I urge you as I did when I was on my way to Macedonia to remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach any different doctrine and not to occupy themselves with myths and endless genealogies that promote speculations rather than divine training that is known by faith. But the aim of such instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Some people have deviated from these and turned to meaningless talk, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make assertions. I am grateful to Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he judged me faithful and appointed me to his service even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a a persecutor, and a man of violence. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of who I am the foremost. I am giving you these instructions, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies made earlier about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, having faith and a good conscience. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. T.S. Eliot wrote, I find words I never thought to speak in streets I never thought I should revisit. Lord, as we revisit the ancient streets of Scripture, may the words we find and speak be your word. In the name of Christ, amen. Nearly every summer I take eight to ten Sundays to preach a series of sermons on a particular theological topic or a character or book of the Bible. I'm following that pattern this sermon beginning today with a series entitled Jewels in the Attic. When I shared that title with my wife long after it had gone into the Westminster publicity system, And a few days after it had appeared letter by letter on both sides of the church sign, she said, nobody keeps jewels in the attic. (laughs) She is probably correct. But I said to her, in what will become a long answer to you, so bear with me, I said, the idea for this series comes from a presentation at the Movable Feast, a preaching seminar I attend each January, 
in which Tom Long, one of our longtime leaders, spoke about a section of the Bible known as the Pastoral Epistles. The Pastoral Epistles are three short books at the end of the New Testament. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. We rarely read these books and we rarely draw sermons from them. Now there are reasons for this limited use of the pastoral epistles. They arose late in the development of Christianity. They were written by the Apostle Paul or by members of his school at least a at least hundred years after the death and resurrection of Christ. They reflect a time when Christianity had evolved from being a movement to becoming an organization with standards and traditions and rules and regulations and offices and office holders. If the Gospels and the letters represent courtship and marriage and honeymoon, the pastoral epistles represent settling down buying a house and having children and saving for retirement. As literature from this more settled stage of Christianity, the pastoral epistles have no magi following a star. They have no riveting parables. There's no betrayal over 30 shekels of silver. There's no walk on the road to Emmaus. Nowhere do the pastoral epistles reach the eloquence of the greatest of these is love. There's no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Instead, in the pastoral epistles, what we find are instructions for prayer and worship, duties of bishops and elders, Guidelines for the care of widows and a stress on the importance of holding to ideas that have been passed down generation to generation as truth. If the pastoral epistles were a Broadway play, they would close after several performances. Now, in addition to being rather settled and mundane, this was all part of my answer to Maggie who had dozed off by this time, (laughs) but it'll come back around. (laughs) The pastoral epistles also contain some very troubling passages, particularly about women and slaves, passages that are dehumanizing and offensive to the ears of all eras including our own. At one point, the writer of 1 Timothy says of younger widows, and I quote, their sensual desires alienate them from Christ, and they learn to be idle, gadding about from house to house, gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not say. At another place, the writer says, I permit no woman to teach or have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. And then later, let all who are under the yoke of slavery regard their masters as worthy of honor. 
In his presentation to us at the Movable Feast, Tom Long said concerning these passages, do not feel like you have to go into this gothic chamber of horrors to retrieve the family jewels. In other words, he was saying, if you want to skip reading these passages, if you want to skip preaching on them or teaching from them or studying them, feel free to skip them. What we find of value within them may not be worth the pain of searching. But in making a decision to enter this chamber of horrors, at least through a couple of sermons this summer, I thought it was better to have on the church sign all summer long jewels in the attic rather than jewels in the chamber of horrors. But why then am I going to preach from these passages and from this part of the Bible in which they appear? One reason is that it is only in two of these sermons that that we face these troubling statements. And when we do, we will tackle them head on. One next week and one on July 17th. Another reason is my belief that if we can work our way through difficult passages in Scripture... And in the way those passages have been used or misused throughout society, we may be able to remove a barrier to our faith or to someone else's faith. It is better to try to dismantle a barrier than to give up traveling down the road that it takes us. But perhaps the most constructive reason to spend significant time in this part of the Bible is that in many ways... The people who lived 100 or 150 years after Christ are actually closer to us in our experience than they are to those who knew Christ directly. The fact is that like them, we are not shepherds making haste to the manger. We are not disciples sitting at the feet of Jesus listening to the Sermon on the Mount. We are not Mary Magdalene at the tomb or Paul on the road to Damascus. Rather, we are people settled into our life and our world trying to make sense of events that happened eons ago. Events that we have been told hold the key to life here and life hereafter. And some of the issues we face in daily life, in politics, in work, are not much different than the issues the people of the pastoral epistles faced. So in addition to dealing with these difficult texts, these sermons this summer will cover the following. As we see the church of the pastoral epistles evolve from a movement to an institution, It begins to develop criteria by which it chooses and judges its leaders. Can this speak to us today? In a passage which outlines high standards for, quote, a good servant of Jesus Christ, one standard concerns the use of language. Can this speak to us today? 
In one of the troubling passages about women, the larger issue in the passage concerns who might genuinely need the support of the community to survive and who might not. Does this distinction speak to our ongoing struggle as a a society to define a safety net for the neediest among us? Another passage offers counsel concerning the role of money in our lives. What is this counsel and how does it speak to us today as surely it does? Several passages reflect deep concern about the role ideas play in our lives, in our church, in our society. Hence the concern for sound teaching we heard in our passage today. This concern leads us to ask, do ideas indeed have consequences? And as the series draws to a close, we will ask if, based on the text we've looked at over the summer, we can continue to affirm affirm that God does indeed breathe through scriptures, even some of which we may legitimately relegate to the attic. As we enter this series, I'd like you to allow me to get a little more autobiographical here. I'm coming up on 12 years of being one of your ministers, which means for some of you I've been your minister for about 15 minutes, and for some of you I've been your minister that whole time. During this time, I have reflected more and more on the different kinds of Christians there are in the world and in Westminster. For example, some of us are movement Christians. We are most at home in the faith when we are involved in a cause for social reform or an evangelistic effort to bring the world closer to being what Christ has redeemed it to be. We resonate with God's movement throughout history, freeing the slaves from Egypt. We sing, onward Christian soldiers, we shall overcome. His truth is marching on. We are most at home as Christians when we are involved in a movement. Some of us are ecclesial Christians. We are most at home in our faith when we are involved in the life of the church. The church is our community, our family, our home. It holds most of our friendships. Whether we're working in its, in its kitchen, attending its classes, or one of its committee meetings, turning to it in our time of grief and loss, we are most alive as Christians when we are involved in the community of the church. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Some of us are worship Christians. We are most at home in our faith when we're involved in prayer or music or the gathering of the community to celebrate the resurrection. Like Isaiah, we see God high and lifted up His train filling the temple. Like Elijah, we encounter God in this still, small voice. We resonate with God's instruction to the psalmist to be still. Be still 
and know that I am God. We most know we are Christian when we worship. And some of us are hands-on Christians. We are most at home in our faith when we're repairing a house for someone who needs our help, when we're climbing up the bell tower to see if we can get the clock to work, when we are mowing the church's lawn or restocking its kitchen. We are more doers of the word than hearers only. We are doorkeepers in the house of the Lord. We are most at home in our faith when we're doing the hands-on work of the church. Come, labor on is our hymn. What I have learned about myself over these years is that more than anything else, I am a textual Christian. I must tell you that there is very little about the life of the church that is choresome to me. I like almost every aspect of my job, and I know very few people can say that. But long about noon on Fridays, when I finish my administrative work and the pastoral care calls and counseling appointments that I know about, and I've taken my days off, I retreat into my study, I shut down email, I put the phone on Do Not Disturb, I tell the office staff that I will see them next week. I take my shoes off and I reach and spread out on my desk the worship notes or research that I've got for the sermon in the week. And then I start to write. I write and I revise. I revise and I write all Friday afternoon. And sometimes I come back Friday night, and I know I'll be there all day Saturday doing the same thing, and sometimes I know I can even come back Saturday night if I need to, and then I come in here Sunday morning really early to do one more revision. When I open this book, the Bible, the text, to study and to write, Something carries me into a zone that is removed from the grass and trees outside my office window, that is removed from the parents I see taking their kids one story beneath my window, taking their kids to the parking lot at George Mason. Even when the text is obtuse or offensive, it never fails to touch me. Sometimes like a cold shower, sometimes like a warm blanket. It never fails to yield something that I'm excited to share with you. Ancient rabbis taught an hour of study is in the eyes of the Holy One, blessed be he as an hour of prayer. What I experience through the text is the presence of God. I am indeed a textual Christian.
Now, I do not expect each of you to spend the amount of time with the text that I do. You have day jobs. I'm told there's more to life than reading the Bible. (laughs) And there are other ways of being Christian. But I hope this summer to wade into a non-headline-grabbing portion of the Bible and to share with you some sense of God's presence speaking in and through these words. Amen.